Uh, welcome to today's podcast, Addressing Business Disruption from Social Risk. Social risk is the number one source of disruption in the world today and the greatest threat to public and private organizations. It remains, however, largely misunderstood, ill-defined, and unaccounted for in traditional risk analysis, leaving governments and businesses alike highly vulnerable to its negative effects. Social risk has increased exponentially in recent years in both frequency and magnitude. New communications technologies and the rise of social media have amplified the grievances and voices of ordinary people and given populations more power vis-a-vis governments and businesses than ever before. In the last three years, social risk has been responsible for the removal of more public and private sector leaders than in the previous 30 years combined. I'm Rain's Chief Marketing Officer, Greg Radner. I'm here today with Jim Sisko and Brian Bloom of Inoto Global, a risk advisory firm that utilizes customized data analytics platforms to uncover, quantify, forecast, and mitigate organizations' social risk exposure, both internally and externally. Jim is Zenodo's founder and CEO. He draws upon 23-year military career in the U.S. Marine Corps, special operations, and naval intelligence, where he developed a comprehensive understanding of risk analysis and population-centric engagement through diverse assignments around the world. Brian is Zenodo's partner and CFO. He previously worked at Barclays Investment Banking Division, where he conducted leveraged buyout and refinancing analyses for sponsor-targeted companies, and at IBM Global Business Services, where he led various programs within the Department of Defense, Federal Emergency Management Agency, and Department of Homeland Security. Welcome, Jim and Brian, to today's podcast. Thanks, Greg. It's good to be here, and look forward to having a fun conversation. Okay, so help me out here. Social risk. Tell me what it is in your words and let our audience know. They probably have seen it and heard it, but maybe not in the terms that you use. So what do you guys think social risk is? So I think the definition that you started off uh, gives a good like overview, but when people still ask questions, well, what exactly is that? And it really is ill-defined because most people look at risk from the traditional lens of geopolitical risk, default risk, technical risk, uh, legal risk. And what we're really talking about is all of these risks that fall outside of these traditional buckets that are becoming more, uh, uh, they're having more of an impact today due to uh, telecommunications technology. So if you look at you know, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, uh, Me Too, Stand Up, uh, you look at social movements, you look at activist uh, groups, you look at even individuals who have the ability to impact uh, governments and business operations. Those are all of the things that we kind of quantify as social risk. Got it. And so how how does this risk manifest itself and impact some of the businesses, governments, things that you were talking about? I mean, I know, obviously, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, we kind of hear those, but what are some of the other manifestations and impacts? So it's a great question. I mean, those... They happen daily, and we just are unaware of them. When we look at how governments are affected through protests and strikes and uh, different events, you know, you can look around the world each day, and you can see uh, unrest happening in Latin America, in Poland, and you name it. Uh, just Google uh, unrest in, in over corruption, and you'll see it happen, you know, all over. I mean, in Latin America, it's prevalent due to the Odebrecht scandal. I mean, one example is in uh, the... The Prime Minister of Iceland had to retire 
or not retire, but he had to leave office because of the Panama Papers. So in the public sector, it's unique and it manifests in different ways. And in the private sector, you know, look at failed marketing campaigns. Look at Papa John's uh, Pizza, Tesla, um, Starbucks. You know, we can find examples every day of the manifestations of socialists. But really what we stem from are unresolved conflicts that exist within our society or within individuals or organizations that aren't addressed. And uh, when they're left unaddressed, they just manifest and they fester, and you know, sooner or later they just explode, and they explode in different ways. So tell me a little bit about um, how this is different a little bit for our private sector versus public sector. I'm sure there's differences in com- you know, between companies and governments and how they're impacted by the social risk. Yeah, it's really, for that, it's the magnitude and the, the types of events that uh, manifest. You know, when you're looking at governments, you'll see that you have large-scale protests, anti-government movements. Uh, those are happening in Romania, even Iran, uh, Nicaragua, India, Dominican Republic, Morocco. They're happening all over. And a lot of times they, uh, they involve or manifest from the same reasons, either corruption, uh, unemployment, uh, impunity, um, lack of economic mobility, and all of these things, uh, you know, they weigh on the society, they weigh on communities, individuals. And uh, there's other security threats that also are, are prevalent within, you know, for, in the public sector. We talk about narco-trapping, terrorism, gang violence. You know, domestically, we can look at, you know, the number of protests that are happening in Charlottesville and St. Louis. Uh, and, and how those are uh, becoming more prevalent. Um, and then even internationally, we look at those different types of movements, like the political campaigns and Brexit and, uh, and different events. And these are all the different kind of uh, activities and manifestations of them affecting the public sector. Got it. And so, you know, some people might be listening and saying, well, this is really around reputation risk, right? So, but it goes beyond that, right? I mean, would you... You get sometimes people asking, "Hey, this is this is reputation risk." No, but it's actually much more than that, right? How would you separate the two, reputation risk and social risk? There. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. We get that uh, every once in a while. But let me let me follow up with the the private sector because we talked about the government sector. For the private sector, those social risks they uh, they manifest in totally different ways. Um, you're looking at PR spikes, boycotts, protests. You know. Facebook loses $119 billion in market value. The NFL, looking at the, you know, the kneeling issue and Papa John's Pizza, Starbucks. So these are all different, but they do fall into, like, as you were alluding to, uh, is this part of reputational risk? And I think that we've done a very good job at looking at how it goes beyond just reputational risk, risk because it has a financial impact on these companies. Um, it has, you know, it goes way beyond just, you know, worrying about reputations, especially when you're looking at the bottom line. You're looking at, you know, hundreds of million dollars lost this year due to several reasons. One of reallocation of resources. When you have to take management time away from operations, you have to divert that to doing crisis management for a public relations campaign. And these things are happening every day. I mean, just today, in the news was how uh, two employees from uh, from 
a Dunkin' Donuts poured water on a homeless person and they were fired. And now you, you know that you know Dunkin' Donuts is in a PR crisis nightmare right now, dealing with uh, the blowback from that. You know, and and this is you know this is all the time. It's happening all the time. And and you know as we'll get to the traditional approaches to this uh, are ineffective. Yeah. I mean, I did see that about Dunkin' Donuts today, and um, I mean, but why is this? I mean, everybody's blaming me, you know, Facebook, Facebook for these kinds of things, Twitter for these things. Is this uh, is happening now, manifesting now because of the now the over reliance on we have on social media today? It's not. There's a direct result. There's a correlation between communications technology and the increase of these events. You know, people now have the ability, individuals now have the ability to go up against uh, you know, corporations and companies. And, you know, going back to what we were talking about, you know, there's a redistribution of power vis-a-vis governments and businesses and, and the population. And the telecommunications technology, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they've been a huge part of this uh, redistribution of power. And uh, And what you're seeing is that, People are now able to mobilize very quickly around events or activities. Um, Brian and I were talking about the other day, you know, flash things or flash things you know, that pop up immediately, and these are indicative of what's happening uh, in our society uh, with the introduction of uh, social media, you know, telecommunications technology, social media. All right, great stuff, Jim. But but now we'll get to we'll turn this a little bit to now what do people do about this? I mean, what are some of the solutions companies, let's stick with companies rather than government sector, but companies to try and help manage this or at least address some of the social risks? Like what's Dunkin' Donuts supposed to do now? What, what tools do they turn to? So before I, you know, talk about what they should do, let me kind of talk about what they currently do. Because when you understand what their current reactions or the typical uh, approaches are, then you can understand why the you know the solutions that we discuss or that we offer or that are available uh, are are very effective. So typical risk analysis, you know, crisis managed techniques in in the in the private sector, they really focus on public relations, crisis management techniques, you know, and even some go as far as looking at corporate social responsibility impact. And really, they just take the same approach. Let's hire, you know, a PR firm. Let's put out a message. Let's, you know, take some knee-jerk reaction. You know, even Mark Cuban, because of the, uh, I forget the, Brian, help me out. What happened with Mark Cuban with that case? They just had an external person come in and do an analysis of the Mavericks front office and found that there were a lot of challenges related to um, you know, the treatment of women and sexual harassment and things like that that weren't addressed and there were personnel that were kept in, you know, their positions even after multiple accusations from multiple people. Yeah, so with that, Mark Cuban donates, I believe it was $100 million to... Uh, yeah, it was, it was $10 million. Oh, $10 million. $10 million, $100 million for Mark Cuban. It really isn't. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, he donates $10 million. Uh, you know, they'll bring in, you know, sometimes they'll bring in, uh, like I remember uh, Starbucks. They brought in advisors. They brought in consultants to help with the corporate culture. You know, uh, they took different approaches to 
um, identifying the problems and, and then coming up with solutions. And even Nike did a similar thing. I mean, I could probably you know, start thinking about it and give you 10 good examples of what they did. But at the end of the day, does it ever change the corporate culture within the, uh, within, within the company? Wells Fargo is a great example. Here you have, you know, bankers who are, you know, basically, you know, creating fake accounts and everybody's focused on the bottom line and making money, generating revenue. And that became the culture within Wells Fargo. And it even led to where they had problems with, uh, you know, with the gender roles and, and promotions and things like that. So you see widespread, uh, you know, problems within an organization. And then these events happen. And what do they do? They just try to tamp it down with some, like, communication, some narratives, a good commercial, but it doesn't change the problems that are, you know, in the core, the core problems that exist within the companies. So there's other, you know, and we'll, we'll get to a case study later on, but some of the other things that companies do is they'll bring on the PR firms or communication firms and they'll go out and use bolt, uh, bots and trolls and to generate public, excuse me, uh, positive public sentiment. And what we've seen is people are very sophisticated. They see that they're using bots and trolls. They understand that these narratives are, you know, generated by the company. And sometimes, and you'll see, you know, negative sentiment against the company increase. Um, so it really is just they take a, a very typical uh, approaches to mitigating these problems. And that, you know, eight out of ten times really creates more negative public sentiment and increases the problems over time. Got it. And so let's talk a little bit about what you guys provide. Um, you hinted at it a little bit as what they should be doing. Um, so what do you guys do that's different than what, you know, they might be doing today, these companies might be doing today? Yeah, this is a question we get with clients all the time. And the best way to, to answer the question is say everything we do is different and nothing we do is different. And then people will come back and well, what do you mean nothing you do is different? So we use similar uh, data analytic tools to come up with uh, information and uncover information. We use social media exploitation. We use machine learning and natural language processing if we're, if we're working in foreign languages. So we use a lot of the similar tools. It's how we use these tools that is really the big difference. And let me start by saying, what we do is when we're faced with a problem, we look at the problem through the lens of the target population, through the lens of the people. Because when you're looking at the problem through a different lens, through the lens of the affected target group, the whole problem looks different. When you're looking at the problem from the company's perspective, you're always looking at it from a distorted perspective. So the number one thing we do that's different is look at it, look at the problem set through the lens of the population. And then what we do is we have to understand the environment, the linguistic environment, the social environment, social cultural environment, and the information environment to understand how people are using communications technologies, how they're talking about uh, the problem, you know, what platforms are they using? Are they talking them primarily on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram? So once we understand this, then we can really start our work. And then what we'll do is we'll look at not only what people are saying, but why they're saying it. Because what we really want to do is uncover those 
underlying grievances through the uh, key topics and also trending topics. What are the hashtags that are supporting this, uh, you know, these movements? What are the, who are the key influencers? So what we do is we lay out a very, uh, we have a process that we, we stick to and every time we have a project and we, it's the sequencing of our technologies, of our methodology, of the capabilities that really separates us along with the approach. And Brian, if I've missed anything, you know, jump in, uh, uh, because I know this is like the critical or key component of what we do. And I know we're not talking about social listening tools. We'll get to that later, but, you know, jump in, Brian. Yeah, I think the big piece missing here, and this is something that Jim would never talk about himself, is the fact that the approach, you know, everything, the process, um, starting from the data collection through the analysis, is really informed by Jim's personal background. You know, he has a really unique background. He never talks about it. It's the fact that he not only was in the Special Forces uh, being an operator, but also was in naval intelligence. So he's been doing these types of, you know, campaigns, understanding what people are thinking and how to shape and influence their behavior, you know, for the last 23 years. Um, and so I think just that combined with all the technical things Jim just mentioned, including the social listening tools, um, really are what makes a unique and different than a lot of the companies out there that, you know, pull data from social media or just scrape, uh, you know, information online or go to the dark web or whatever it may be. So I think that's a key piece that Jim wouldn't talk about himself. Got it. That's very helpful. Yeah, thanks, Brian. I appreciate you bringing that up. <laughs> I think that's a key. <laughs> I think that's a key point, you guys, as a differentiator. I mean, it's this combination of the tools and the the process, right? It's the people and the tools together that really try to get to the to the the root of the matter. I mean, let's stick with the tools for a second. And we'll talk about the people. But you mentioned social listening tools, some data analytics, natural language processing, things like that. Our listeners may not be familiar with those tools, so maybe just dive into what those are a little bit. Okay. Well, you know, there's a hundred data data analytics firms out there, and they use, you know, the similar tools to do machine learning and natural language processing. These things aren't uncommon. You know, what we're talking about for us and the differentiators is social listening tools. So, and this kind of goes back to my background. And when you run human sources, you have to understand what motivates them. You have to understand how to obtain information in the right way and make sure that that information is reliable and credible and timely. And what we've done is we've been very creative in how we've uh, we've you know, built some of the social listening tools, not relying on the traditional ways that companies would do that by doing like Google searches and desktop analysis. So, for example, when we worked on a lot of the political campaigns, uh, in Latin America and, and in other places, we needed to kind of uh, prove our hypothesis. We needed to reinforce the data analytics, you know, and validate the data analytics. So one of the social listening tools that we developed were called Uber polls. And what we would do is we would uh, Uber around uh, Mexico City or wherever all day long. And we'd get in an Uber and we'd just start talking to the Uber driver. Hey, what do you think about the political campaign? Who would you vote for? What do you think about this? Uh, and then we'd ask him questions like, how old are you? You know, What do you do? Oh, you're a student. What do you study? And they were very informative because you're able to aggregate that data and you're able to uh, 
uh, you know, validate what your uh, what your data analytics is is providing. The other thing we do is we don't rely on polling or surveys or focus groups. And people who are you know, familiar with those techniques, they know that they're inherently flawed and they're really not accurate for a number of reasons. Sample set size, I mean, we can go into it you know, for hours. But So what we've done is we've created our technical platforms to, uh, to replace polling or we use it to, uh, you know, to confirm the results of polls. For example, what we'll do is we'll measure sentiment analysis, understand, you know, how people feel about a particular topic or issue. And then what we'll do is we'll measure that over time and we'll continue to measure daily. So a poll will provide you a snapshot of time, a snapshot of information in time. You know, on this date, people felt like this. And then what they'll do is they'll do another poll like three months later or two months later or a month later to, to see if there's any changes or deviations. And that really doesn't provide you good insights. You know that uh, on this date, they, they're 32% of the people felt good about it. On this date, 34% of the people felt good about it. But why did they change? So our tools allow you to measure it over time consistently, and we can look for anomalies and deviations look for trends, and understand why these movements are happening. Um, so those are just a couple of the social listening tools that we use that are, are really different than what's out there right now. I mean, we really – we work across the world. We've worked in over 30 countries already, and the information environment is really diverse. Um, you know, we've worked, Jim mentioned, um, you know, Latin America. We've been in the Middle East, Afghanistan. That's actually where Jim and I met. Um, and you really need to tailor the data collection technique to that environment. So in addition to what Jim said, we've also, you know, worked with bloggers, YouTubers, and even leveraged religious networks that are in places that, you know, maybe society doesn't go to um, very often. Um, in addition to that, you know, speaking of the political campaigns, we even designed a, uh, you know, interactive crowdsourcing platform that gives um, candidates a direct, direct access to their constituents um, on a platform that we've called iPeople um, so that they can not only see what people are saying across multiple platforms in real time, but also proactively engage them uh, and, and, you know, kind of have a two-way conversation, something that's been relatively lacking um, in political discourse, not just in the U.S., but, but abroad as well. Yeah, I think that's really helpful insight into how you guys go about data collection and analysis. It's, I guess it's surprising how much you could learn from an Uber driver uh, or several of them. So that was really interesting, new sort of market research tool and technique. Um, well, let's try to make this sort of now real for the audience here, too, with some examples. Um, you know, some examples of your, of your work, maybe one in the domestic market, one in the international market. Maybe you can walk us through a couple of examples for the audience. Sure. Um, you know, Jim, maybe I'll start with the international and then pass it over to you for the domestic. Um, okay, cool. So, you know, we offer a wide range of analytical products and services. And like I said, you know, we really tailor it to the environment that we're working in. So it could be a due diligence analysis. It could be using the iPeople platform. Um, a lot of times for financial decision making, we provide real-time situational awareness for, you know, due diligence and then during active management and then even to the sales process to educate potential buyers. So a couple of examples um, that we recently did in India um, were related to Saudi Aramco. They made an investment in a joint venture um, in an oil refinery that was operated by 
I believe it was the India Oil Company in Maharashtra, India. Um, and like most financial institution or financial decision making, um, they didn't include social risk in their original due diligence. So they missed some tensions that were increasing between the current management and the community surrounding the area. And when Anoto did a week-long analysis, we quickly uncovered issues regarding um, water insecurity and environmental issues and even political and religious issues. Um, and most of the negative sentiment actually revolved around a lack of communication from the refinery. And we find that that's pretty typical. People just want to know what's going on. Um, and ultimately, the result was a month-long delay in the state approving um, approving the investment so that um, stakeholders actually ended up backing out and the deal just totally fell apart. Um, something that's actually a little more interesting than that or a little more, uh, you know, multifaceted was uh, about a copper uh, mining company called Sterlite Copper. Um, they were operating the largest copper mine in India that accounted for about 40% of India's copper output. Um, and this one was interesting because there were multiple stakeholders involved, politicians, uh, NGOs and social media influencers were exacerbating um, local issues. Um, it was the same sort of thing. There was a lack of communication from Sir Like Copper regarding environmental contamination and even firing on protesters outside the gates of the facility. Um, so these other actors stepped in and filled that void and shaped, um, you know, public perception. And it resulted in the closing of the facility. And they, I think they were losing at last count about $210 million per month. Um, and what made the matters worse, and Jim alluded to this earlier, when we designed a new communication strategy for them, we were basically ignored. We basically said to them, you need to address these issues. You need to proactively look at these different stakeholder groups. And instead, they hired um, an organization and used bots to spread positive messaging online. And Jim, as Jim said before, um, people are pretty smart, and they figured this out, and it actually ended up increasing negative public sentiment and public opposition to reopening the plant. Um, so this, these two phenomena are not, you know, isolated to India or to foreign markets. Um, as we mentioned earlier, there's definitely domestic case, uh, case studies on this, and I'll pass it over to Jim to talk about one of those. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh, you know, I don't want to go into the business side of it. I mean, it, as Brian alluded to, this has applications for financial, for financial institutions, investments, and you know, I look at it from more of a perspective, from a social perspective, and so two case studies that we worked on, and they really are near and dear to me, uh, the strikes and protests and litigation are happening domestically. So uh, when we when we were uh, seeing the, the protests in St. Louis, before the protests happened, we were kind of started looking at it and say, hey, we know due to the shootings, due to, uh, due to the legal case, we could potentially see some unrest. So what we did is we, we developed a platform and we started our collection prior to the announcement um, of the, the verdict for the shooting of, uh, that happened in St. Louis. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to demonstrate to law enforcement officials and, and government leaders our ability to help them manage the crisis. So we reached out to, to those groups and we, uh, we, we kind of informed them what we were doing and we offered to help. And you know, we we receive this all the time. We we got it. We can handle it. Thank you very much. We're not interested. We we went out to Chicago and spoke with the deputy mayor, and the and their crimes are about the same thing. And you know they they're, they're very set in their ways, and they're like, hey, we have this. But 
what we were able to do is we were able to watch the protest evolve real time. We were able to see the key influencers and how they were really driving and influencing and shaping the protests on the ground, how the police and how government officials were ineffective in their messaging and how they were actually increasing social tension and public sentiment against them with some of the narratives that they were putting out. And we watched this real time and were able to uh, provide insights to law enforcement, recommendations to law enforcement and government officials real time. And those uh, recommendations, they, they obviously fell upon deaf ears. And basically what we saw was a confluence of events where the negative messaging, the external influencers um, were really creating the environment and and exacerbated, you know, a lot of the, the social tensions which still exist within St. Louis. They have not been addressed. Um, and that, for us, you know, we did that uh, for this for this particular uh, event, and we're able to do it for events, uh, you know, very quickly. You can stand these up, understand the key influencers, understand what the drivers of this social uh, unrest are, and provide not only the narratives to help um, these you know, law enforcement and uh, government officials create the narratives that would mitigate the social tensions, but actually the engagement activities, how to engage and what to do. And, and I always bring this example up. When you have, you know, 20,000 protesters storming the streets and, you know, you know, marching to a government building to protest, and what do you do? You escalate tensions by bringing out, you know, armed police with their batons and shields, and then you bring out the water cannons, and then you bring out the uh, dogs, and then you bring out, you know, you're escalating tensions. And, but what happens if 20,000 protesters were met with police who were handing out water and coffee and blankets and donuts? You know, you immediately de-escalate the tension. You reduce your social risk, and you provide a platform for, for, for you know, normative discourse. So it goes beyond just the narratives. You know, we provide all of the different strategies to help mitigate these uh, events in our cities. And I know I went a, long, a little long, but it, for me it's personal because, you know, I was involved with these, uh, you know, activities and was very frustrated in the, the outcomes. And, and if you look at, Min, you know, Minnesota, Dallas, you know, St. Louis, uh, Baltimore, Chicago, there's no solutions. They haven't gotten away. And these, uh, these things can, you know, explode within, within minutes and hours over one single event. And that's what we're going back to. Uh, there's no good solution uh, out there for, to mitigate this. Yeah, so that's kind of a uh, sorry it was a little long-winded, but no, it's, like, no, it's that's great, Jim. I think good examples and great to hear around the, the risk mitigation strategies in addition to just the information because that's what companies I think are struggling with is all right, what do I do about it, right? So I think your example is, is spot on. So. Uh, just final wrap-up question here is, uh, so where do you see things going? Where, where, where are you guys going from here in terms of the evolution of an ODA? Go ahead. I was going to say one thing real quick. We just had a strategic advisory board meeting, kind of like a board get-together, and, you know, I was asked this kind of similar question. And I really tried to outline the vision for the organization. I said, you know, it's very simple. We're 2020, 2020. 
And everybody was like, what's that mean? I said, by 2020, we're going to be a $20 million annual revenue company with 20 full-time employees making $20,000 a month, around $250,000 a year. And that's the vision for the company. But it goes beyond that. And really what we're trying to do and what we want to do is we want to tackle you know, the hardest problems that exist within society and deliver solutions. And two projects that we are currently working on, we're working on a school violence mitigation uh, program and we're working on a, a community policing relations program. And we're using our methodology and our, our population-centric approach and all of our technical tools to find solutions to these problems that exist within our society that you know there's no good solutions for. But we're looking at school violence and you see like bulletproof backpacks and uh, active shooter training and you're looking at insurance policies for uh, for these events. And they're not tackling the, the, the problem and finding cures you know, what we joke around is we say they're just mowing the lawn, they're not killing the weeds. And what we're trying to do is find solutions that that uh, underlie the problem. And for school violence, it's very simple. You have all these social risk factors, bullying, sexting, video games, poor parenting, you know, drugs. And these are the manifestations of the problem, like school shooting or school violence. And you have to really understand teen culture the identities of these children, of these students, to understand how the problems manifest. And when you have a law enforcement official, he sees everything as a law enforcement problem. So he has a big hammer and a nail, and everything is a, the nail is a law enforcement. When you have an educator, they've been educating in that mindset for years. So when they see the problem, they see they have a hammer, and they see the nail as, you know, the educational program. The same thing goes with, like, uh, you know, psychologists or sociologists, they look at it through a you know, mental health lens. And what we're really doing is looking at the problem through the student's lens. You know, what are the things that are happening to me or impacting me? And the thing that we've learned the most, you know, we just launched the program, uh, you know, about a month ago, is that there's, there's such a disconnect between what parents, what school administrators, what teachers, what law enforcement uh, officials think, and what students are actually thinking, and students are very sophisticated these days. Some students are able to, you know, create their own VPN network, and then they're able to, you know, bully online without being caught you know, on school premises. And, you know, what we really want to do is we want to find out what these social risk variables are, measure them, and then come up with the uh, ways to prevent school violence and bullying. And that's, uh, that's just for the school violence one. Brian, go ahead and uh, sorry to interrupt you, and I hope I, hopefully I didn't take your thunder, but that's uh, kind of like one of the projects we're working on. No, no, that's perfect. I was going to go high level because I knew you were passionate about it and knew you'd go into you know deep into it. Um, you know, for us, the bread and butter is obviously working with private sector institutions. Um, you know, that's where we've had the most success. That's where most of our clientele resides, but as Jim alluded to earlier, there's an altruistic component to what we do, and that's to solve those society's most complex problems. And that's why um, when Jim and I sat down at the beginning of the summer and said, you know, what are the two things that, you know, we're really passionate about? Jim already mentioned both of them, the community police relations and school violence. Um, but it's, all, it's always centered around the population and the community. So we also have an advocacy program to try to connect 
you know, different, um, you know, interest groups with the populations and, and the politicians and trust. So for everyone, it's the political campaigns. We obviously have the midterms coming up um, in the U.S. Um, you know, we work internationally, so there's always elections going on. We're always trying to bridge that gap between, um, you know, politicians and constituents or like what we like to say, um, you know, public servants and their constituents. Um, so for us, it's just going to be continuously to look for what are those biggest problems out there and how can we bring new innovative solutions that benefit the population. Hey, it's great. Well, listen, I want to thank you guys both for your time today. Um, it's great to see folks taking on some of these big problems. The school shooting one in particular um, hits home for a lot of people. Um, and if you can make inroads in that, that's a, that's a huge win for everyone. Um, so th- I want to thank you guys for your time today and for participating in today's podcast. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the daily risk book email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.